0: Have you found a magic money tree, Mr Johnson? And have you found perhaps more than one of them, Mr Corbyn? (laughs) No,
1: we are operating within strict fiscal discipline. Boris Johnson has pledged £5 billion to roll out full fibre to every home by 2025. That, to me, seems much more reasonable than the £80 billion, according to the Tories, that labels... According to the Tories, come on.
0: Our public services are in dire need of investment. But how much? Which ones? They're questions that have loomed large over the first weeks of the election campaign.
1: And what we would do is that we would invest £26 billion between now and 2024 into the NHS. The question is, is
0: yes, everybody is now saying they want to spend more money. But the question is, is can you effectively spend the money In the middle of a debate over competing spending plans, isn't it also time to ask what we want our public services to actually do for us? That's the view of a group of economists and campaigners who are pushing for something called Universal Basic Services, a radical expansion of the state in areas like transport, childcare and social care. More than 70 years after the creation of the welfare state and the NHS, is it time to reimagine the basic services we should all expect? That's our Big Question on the Weekly Economics Podcast today. I'm Ayesha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So, I'm really pleased today to be joined by two returning friends of the pod. First up is Anna Koot. Anna is a NEF Principal Fellow and a co-author of a forthcoming book on the case for universal basic services. Welcome, Anna.
2: Hello.
0: Thanks for being with us. And also back on the pod is an old friend, Laurie McFarlane, economics editor at Open Democracy and research fellow at the UCL Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. Hi, Laurie. Hello. Good to have you back. Okay, so we're going to dive in, uh, talking about UBS. So I mentioned at the top of the episode that it's been a long time since we last had a major expansion of public services. Anna, can you talk us a little bit through kind of the history and the case for expanding State services?
2: Well, if you go back to the mid 1940s, you start with the welfare state, the birth of the welfare state, the National Health Service, uh, free schooling, social housing. It all began through that period and expanded through the 50s and became the widely accepted view of how we should help each other meet our needs.
0: Mm. And how has that kind of uh, changed recently? I know, Laurie, you've talked a lot about how state services have been eroded um, and some of perhaps the market ideology that's underpinned that. So could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, the erosion in public services generally or the, the increased marketization, if you like, of, of some public services that we've seen over the past four decades or so has been mimicked really by the rise of uh, an eth- economic orthodoxy which has its roots in... Um, academia, um, but has, has over time grown a, a kind of tighter grip over economic policy and over government policy. And the, the kind of orthodoxy basically says if you if you go to a standard university today, even probably most of them, and, and, and you get taught is um, that goods and services are most effectively and efficiently provided by private profit maximizing firms operating in a competitive market. And if they have this situation, then you have this kind of welfare optimising society. Uh, And the government should only do something, the only reason for governments to intervene, as it would be called, is if there's a perceived uh, market failure. So the default position is that markets are always and everywhere the best way of providing things. And it's only if you can kind of prove that there's a market failure, the government should do something. But then it went even further than that, because then people came along and said, actually, there's something called government failure. And that's because governments aren't very good at doing things. And then even if there is a market failure, well, the government shouldn't necessarily do anything because governments are bad at doing things. And this kind of ideology, uh, although it has its roots in in kind of mathematical proofs in economics, has, uh, has obviously been very convenient for certain powerful interests in recent decades. And, and this kind of philosophy, if you like, has really been at the forefront and underpinning a lot of the policy trajectory that we've seen in, in, in this country and other countries of privatisation, of liberalisation, of even where there are public services, still kind of injecting market logic and market forces into these services uh, in order to try and get the, the perceived benefits of, of market logic.
2: Mm. What we discovered as we, this began to happen in public services, was yeah. that introducing competition and choice, so-called, didn't really improve things at all. They didn't keep costs down. They didn't make things better for people. They didn't improve outcomes. And so what we've learned, I think, since the, perhaps the beginning of the 1990s, is that although there was this very strong ideology in favour of market rules, introducing market rules into public services, that it didn't help at all. So we've got to the point now where we're beginning to think again and where it's far more difficult for the people who would support market choices and competition to defend what they've done because yeah. they look at and say, well, it hasn't really worked. So now we've, we've got to think afresh about, about what we do and reclaim some of the essentials of the post-war settlement.
0: Mm, brilliant okay that was a a very thorough and and concise uh, whistle stop tour of where we've got to a wonderful place to start so let's talk about what we mean by universal basic services or UBS for short so it's a phrase that we've been hearing more and more about in the last couple of years Um, Anna you were on an episode of the podcast last April talking about um, the difference between UBS and UBI Um, so what tends to be included under the banner of UBS what are we talking about
2: the easiest way to explain is to put it in reverse order. So what are services? Services are collectively generated um, activities that serve the public interest. Okay. Basic means things that are essential for all of us to survive and flourish. Mm-hmm. So life's essentials. And universal means that everybody is entitled to have their needs met regardless of their ability to pay. So that's what we mean by universal basic services.
0: OK, so what's included in that? Give me some examples. Well, the most obvious examples, of course, are um,
2: health care yeah. and education. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're very familiar with the idea of healthcare and education being provided, uh, paid for through taxation and provided to all of us as a matter of entitlement, even yeah. if that entitlement isn't actually pinned down in law. Mm-hmm. Um, but we all think we're, we have a right to that, and indeed, most of us do get what we need in terms of healthcare and education. So if you take that example and you think this is what the idea of universal basic services is, is to expand it. So you expand it both by improving and extending what's available in terms of, of health and education. And then you move into other areas like adult social care, like child care, housing, transport and access to digital information. And indeed, I mean, th- those are the areas that we've been focusing on, but you could go further into the utilities. So you'd be thinking about water, energy, things like that. So, so that It's not something that has precise boundaries, it's an approach Mm. which says, let's understand between us what we all really need, as opposed to want, and how can we work together to help each other to have those needs met.
0: Mm. So it's kind of a way of, of, I guess, expanding the, the, the basic. You know what we think of as as basic, so kind of going beyond healthcare and and education to include other things, as you say. Well, if you
2: think about essential rather than basic, it's probably a better way of understanding mm, mm-hmm. it. What are life's essentials? What do we, what what would we not be able to flourish if we didn't have? These are things like, well, obviously water, energy for electricity uh, to heat our homes and so on. But then things like being cared for when we need to be cared for. Mm. Um, being able to learn when we need to learn, mm. um, having a roof over our heads, having nutritious food and so on. Each of these areas of need, they all have to be met in, in different ways because they all have different histories and different characteristics. So we're not certainly not saying that this is every single service area needs to be provided in the same way. Every single area needs a customised approach.
1: I think the kind of essence for me anyway of UBS is that it's really about taking certain things that we deem to be essential, like Anna just said, out of the whims of the market, decommodifying them, if you like, and making sure they're available to everyone. And I think often when presented with this kind of proposal, some people, um, particularly people who have been kind of steeped in the, in the orthodoxy that I just talked about earlier, is often to think, oh, this is outlandish, you know, this is, you yeah. know, you know. And an exercise I find quite useful to do is to kind of rewind. Imagine if we rewinded to, say, before the welfare state was created and, and all the other things that Anna talked about. And if you're a policymaker is with the kind of toolkit they use today, things like the NHS would never have been created. They would never have passed, you know, the the cost-benefit analysis that policymakers use today. They would never pass any of this stuff. Um, neither would probably, you know, the welfare state, and neither would things I always think libraries are a, great example of mm. this because libraries actually be taken for granted but are a radical thing and I always think if, if they hadn't been invented and somebody said today let's have libraries they probably wouldn't happen because the industry would say hold on a minute what mm. the government having a thing that's given out our stuff for free absolutely not and they'd probably be able to sue them under some kind of competition policy arrangement <laughs> if you know what <laughs> I mean and so these things it's capturing that kind of spirit that we've taken bold advances in this in the past and we've been kind of reined in because we've been as I said chained to these kind of failing economic orthodoxies and it's about what does this kind of imagination look like but apply to 21st century challenges I think is what UBS is is about. Mm.
0: So I can I can definitely see the ways in which this would be beneficial kind of what's coming up for me at the moment I imagine is having all these things provided would give us more leisure time and more you know money to spend in the economy and all these kind of things but any of the other kind of big benefits that I'm missing here what else what else is would we get from this?
2: Well, I mean, if you look at what you can achieve if you have a program of universal basic services, you can certainly achieve greater equality Mm. because um, the people who are the poorest will benefit most. They're efficient, providing things, meeting needs collectively instead of just having individual market transactions. You have much better value for money doing it that way. I mean, there are lots of arguments in there, which I I don't think I've got time to go into, Mm. but also it helps to... Strengthen solidarity between people because you're treating people you're bringing people together mm, um, and giving them experience of helping each other and and then it's uh, more sustainable which is a whole other argument mm. about this about how it is um, if you want to enable people to meet their needs that in a way that is fair and sustainable over time the best way to do it is through collectively provided services.
0: Okay, so how would we kind of start to think about the the costings around this? I want to dive into critiques uh, in in a second. But before we do that, just could Anna or, or Laurie, could either of you give us a little bit of a steer on uh, roughly how much we spend on public services right now, perhaps, and how that would compare to what you're advocating, a, a UBS model, just to give us a sense of scale and context?
2: Well, we've tried to anticipate what it would cost to implement all the expansions that we've proposed in childcare, adult social care, housing, transport and digital information all at once. And we're saying that we think that would cost something in the region of between 4 and 5% of GDP. Now, what that doesn't take account of is the savings that you would get because these services are preventative. They stop more expensive harms occurring mm-hmm. later on that will require different kinds of intervention and there is a huge social value that so there are all sorts of positive benefits that can be set against their cost what it needs to be regarded as is an investment not mm. as just money spent but an investment in society in the same way as we would invest in roads and railways, which we regard as an investment, not just public expenditure. Mm -hmm. So this is an investment in the health and well-being of society as a whole, which in turn yields positive dividends for the economy as well.
0: Mm. Laurie, what do you reckon?
1: I think the point about recognizing that um yes, there will be upfront up cost if we if we want to call it that, upfront cash commitments required to, to do this. But I think the point that Anna raised about the benefits is so important because this is something that gets completely lost in the discourse around the economy that we have in this country today. I mean, we're now in an election campaign. Uh you know, over the last week or two we've been kind of lambasted with figures from all quarters saying this is gonna cost this much, this is gonna cost That much, and all of this. um, I actually ended up writing a piece last week on this because it was annoying me so much. They they follow this kind of common formula, which is basically calculate usually an inflated upfront cost of how much this is going to cost, then ignore any benefit whatsoever, whether that's economic benefit, social benefit, environment benefit, and then declare that it's unaffordable. Mm. Um, And this is the it's the only this kind of approach is the only you only see it when it comes to politics and in the public sector debate if you took this kind of analysis as a civil servant you'd be sacked the next day because it's so ridiculous or even if you worked in the city you know they recognize that you know yes there's two sides of a balance sheet there's liabilities and there's assets so you need to look at both yes you might have to spend some money to begin with but if there are returns to that which in this case there are then it's not a cost but it's you know a sound investment and this just gets completely lost i think in the in the discourse in this country and it's really really important to emphasise this and shift the debate off of what's the cost and and more about, well, you know, frame this as an investment that will have returns to society, I think.
0: So just I just want to quickly respond because I have a question on that because I heard something about this today. So there's there's two things I'm hearing there. One of them is that we need to change the way that we're thinking about it rather than just asking how much it's going to cost and see it as see it as an investment. And one of them is the point about political discourse which is at times kind of in the run up to elections or or generally when we're talking about public services being uh, offered by the state. The, the calculations that we get presented with and the information that we're given is kind of skewed in the direction of perhaps misrepresenting, I guess, the, the efficacy of the state in, in, in offering those services. Is that right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's many ways that this manifests itself. But, I mean, one, uh, Anna's already alluded to it, but there are many, many interventions in things like UBS, which may well have a whole bunch of consequences like improving maybe mental health, mm-hmm. like improving... Physical health, um, all kinds of things, which will actually reduce expenditure in other areas, reduce pressures on the NHS, reduce elsewhere. But none of that gets captured. Instead, they just want to know how much are you going to spend, uh, you know, on day one, and where are you going to get that money from? Mm. And oh, it's unaffordable. Um, and yeah, it just kind of really pollutes the discourse, I think, in the, in this country.
2: Okay. Well, obvious examples are um, childcare and education, where you're spending money. On um, developing the potential of uh, f- future generations, who, if they didn't have the childcare, decent childcare, it's got to be good quality and decent, good quality education, um, they would then there would the, the social costs of their failure to, um, to 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 learn about things, to get jobs, to uh, know how to you know, play their part in society are massive. And that never mm-hmm. gets taken into account. So an investment, I mean, in New Zealand, for example, um, they talk. They have talked in the past about investment in childcare in so many terms. They say, yes, we're going to invest in childcare, just like we invest in roads and railways. Okay. I mean, you could make a similar, uh, similar case for housing, I mean, indeed, for most of Across these. Across the were. board, yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, I want to, yeah, I want to uh, dive, dive a bit more. Now we've kind of started into the drawbacks and the critiques that come up around around UBS. So we've we've touched the, on them already, but one of them that we hear is kind of around the idea of uh, who owns the services? Do they all be, belong? You know, are they all run by the state? In which case, will it kind of be a big bureaucratic apparatus that is kind of um, you know impenetrable? Um, what are the what are the limits of, of UBS as a kind of as a as a mode of offering these services. So, yeah, what are some of the, the key critiques that uh, might be in listeners' minds around this?
2: Well, you, when in your opening, you said this was an expansion of the state. Actually, I don't really see it that way. I think it is an expansion of uh, collective activities and it's yeah. a reassertion of the collective ideal, but it doesn't at all mean that you simply grow the state and the state provides everything. Mm-hmm. So what we're thinking, the, the way of looking at... Um, universal basic services is to imagine uh, quite a wide variety of models of delivering those services that might include the state, that do often include the state. I mean, the state will continue to provide the NHS, for example, and schooling, but in many other services, you would want to involve a, a range of different organisations, whether they're cooperatives or employee-owned outfits or social enterprises. What you want to reduce is the number of services that are um, delivered by profit-extracting organisations, because that doesn't help to achieve the objectives of the of the whole programme. So you're looking at a wide variety of models of, of control and delivery, with the state being In some cases, the provider, but always the body that ensures equality of access, raising and distributing funds so that these services can be um, can be delivered, um, ensuring standards, setting and ensuring quality standards and coordinating services so that
0: you get the best results. Okay. Okay. Laurie, critiques. What else have we got?
1: Well, I think it's less of a critique. It's more of a, a recognition of, of where things are, are at, which is that there's still a lot of thinking to be done. I think that people may well ask justifiably, well, where's the limits of this? Mm-hmm. You know, why isn't everything going to be classed as UBS? And, and, and you know? And what who about decides, this? I and guess, who, and what's who deci- essential. Exactly, okay. and who decides. And I mean, some of the kind of flagship reports uh, around this so far... Uh, the Institute for Global Prosperity at UCL has is, is, is published one or two of them. And I think there are, you know, areas in there which in these, you know, formative reports definitely need much more fleshing out, you know, in terms of they had food in there, which to me didn't really feel like it had been thought through very much. Um, I
0: mean, housing, it's certainly essential.
1: It's certainly essential. But, it, but I mean, in terms of well, what does it actually mean, you know, yeah, uh, practically but, okay. if we're going to have food as, you, as a universal basic service? What does that actually mean? And obviously food covers many things. It covers food production, then covers food, like the retail of food in terms of how people actually buy and sell individually and, and as a household. And so there's, there's lots of things like that. And housing, another one um, one that, that, that uh, you know, I've, I've worked on, and I think this is very relevant to housing because in the last few decades we've seen the, the reverse of UBS happening. We've, we've sold off the majority of our social housing stock. We've not replaced it. The state's kind of withdrawn from housing provision, uh, left everything to the market at the same time as uh, the kind of interaction with the liberalised financial sectors had this horrible effect of creating the housing crisis that we're in today.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I think moving towards, a, moving away from a world where houses are treated as financial assets, which is the world we're in today, to one where they're seen as somewhere to live, uh, a sort of a decommodification of housing is essential. And like Anna said, that doesn't just mean, I think that more public housing is essential, but it doesn't mean just that. I think there are all types of different models, cooperative housing, community land trusts, all different types of models that would come under that bracket, but represent quite a radical departure from where we're at today. So I think that less a criticism, I think it's just, um, I think there's more thinking to be done in terms of. Uh, what what we're including here, and and what does that look like in different sectors? Because each sector is completely different. There's no, I don't think there's a kind of model that you can just like impose everywhere. That's mm.
2: right. I mean, if you take it is, it, what we need to think about is what's the role of public policy. So if you go back to food, for example, it certainly shouldn't mean just giving everybody free meals. Just as housing policy would never mean giving everybody a free house, but in food, for example, public public policy can ensure that um, through regulation that there are high standards of food production and through um, through public investment uh, provide Free school meals mm-hmm. could ensure that all public institutions provide a decent quality of food for people who who eat within those up, like institutions and, and yeah. prisons and mm-hmm. and indeed any any public office mm-hmm. and so and banning advertisements of uh, junk food by schools and so there's a whole range of of policies that you can see as a package that would help to promote the availability of nutritious food to everyone regardless of ability to pay I Mm -hmm. mean then there are good examples from places like Finland where throughout the summer holidays there are free meals for kids in the parks Mm. Um, and it's not just something you get because you're poor it's available for everyone and it's regarded as a just something that people have that they expect Mm. so there's lots of ways in which you can provide a service and you need to see as Laurie says in each service area or in each area of need, there's a different package you can put together that includes things like regulation and investment, but also direct provision and the orchestration, if you like, of, of the activities of non-state organisations.
0: Mm. So it's perhaps about thinking about it in this much more holistic way rather than just the basic Absolutely. provision. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about where we are now. So we're recording this two weeks into an election campaign, and the New Economics Foundation is a charity, so we can't get a party political, we all know that. But just so our listeners know, uh, we're recording this on the 12th of November, um, and there have been lots of claims this week about big public spending commitments from various parties if they win the election. So uh, starting with you, Laurie, do any of these uh, big promises look like what we're talking about? Are, Are any of them pledging UBS?
1: Um, Well, we've seen, as you said, a a lot of big numbers being thrown around. At at this point, um, we haven't seen the manifestos, and so it's difficult to to know exactly what the parties are proposing. The Conservatives are, uh, in direct contrast to their strategy at previous elections, they're no longer talking about cutting spending. They're talking about increasing spending, including uh, in areas like um, the NHS uh, and education to some extent, so they are talking about this. What, what I find interesting, though, is what they haven't talked about much is the, the kind of model of provision, particularly when it comes to healthcare. Uh, we talked about how in recent decades there's been a big shift towards marketization, but also to things like private finance initiatives, where you're kind of actually giving it to the private sector to build and operate and run. Um, and Philip Hammond, when he was the chancellor, said, uh, actually, before he well was sacked, that we're no longer going to do PFI. Um, But there's been very little detail in terms of what the kind of the Tories view of how public services should be delivered going forward, what the role of the public sector is, what the role of the private sector is, what the role of the third sector is. We just don't know. And so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, Labour. Labour have, yeah, I mean, Labour have certainly taken some steps towards this with this approach. I think one of the big interesting things, obviously, apart from spending on health, et cetera, um, they've announced the National Education Service, which is, I suppose, an effort to kind of bring all of education into what you might call the UBS model. So at the moment, we have the UBS model for primary and high school education. We don't have it um, for university education, very other lots of other types of education, which cost money, which people have to take loans out, which are often provided by private providers. And, and the idea that Labour have developed is that education is a lifelong process that at any time in people's career, they should be able to go and learn whatever skills or things that they need without having to you know, take out a big loan or pay lots of money. And so I think that that's an interesting example of moving towards this kind of um, philosophy. They're also talking about social care, bringing social care much and more in line with uh, as we, we we treat other types of uh, healthcare issues in the NHS, which is also a step towards this. And so I do think Labour are taking this seriously and, and they have talked about uh, their interest in UBS. And so I think it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in other areas as we see the manifesto come out.
0: Mm. Anna, anything on political parties? Well,
2: I think both parties, both of the main parties, have um, said they're going to sort out the problem of social care, haven't they? Yeah. So that the idea that it would be um, available to everyone, uh, no one would not get social care that they needed because they couldn't afford it. I think the devil will be in the detail for for all the parties to see what how they would actually put it into practice. Mm. But what I sense is that... Across the political spectrum, there is a change of mood here about the welfare system, about the, you know, the fate of the post-war settlement, if you like, about where we're going next, and an acknowledgement that we do need to invest in society as well as just uh, leaving the market to do whatever it wants to do. However, you know, it's hard to say how much of this is just rhetoric mm-hmm. and how much of it is really going to happen in practice.
1: Mm. I think it's worth mentioning, actually, uh, the Lib Dems, just because I think there's an interesting example here. Of uh, they've talked about the skills wallet. What um, is
0: that? I've heard this. So is this is so this is the kind of the, the,
1: the other. Appro- this is the kind of if you're trying to tackle the education problem, there are kind of two ways you could go about it. There's one, which is the way we've talked about the kind of decommodified UBS version, and the other one, if you if you accept that as a government, you need to do something because it's not working for the market the skills wallet approach which Lib Dems has done is basically well let's just give people uh, a wallet with certain amounts of money at different types of their career which they're free to use to spend on different types of education so um, they could spend maybe I don't know three grand and when they're 25 on some kind of technical education when they're 40 they'll get another five grand to spend on this And, you know, aside, leaving aside the fact that this is the party that, you know, tripled tuition Tuition fees and now they've come back and said, oh, but you can have three grand to do this. (laughs) Uh, It's almost like a kind of UBI minus for education, if you like. It's saying here's some cash, here's some vouchers, you can go and choose in the market what to do it on. And that's obviously a, a, a very opposite approach from uh, the, the, the kind of decommodified UPS approach that we've been talking about. So it's, sort of, it's just an interesting. interesting contrast, I think, we've seen between the parties.
0: Mm. But definitely backs up your point, Anna, that they're all at least paying it some mind, this question of, of welfare. Yeah. Um, brilliant. So we're going to wrap up soon, but uh, we always like to give listeners a little bit of hope. So are there um, inspiring examples of this kind of working, I guess, in other countries that we can learn from, places that have expanded universal public services in this way successfully?
2: Well, we've spent quite a lot of time looking around the world at what's going on in other countries and mm-hmm. where there are examples of, um, of of needs being met collectively. And there are a great many examples that I couldn't possibly go into detail about here. But you could look to uh, Norway for a, a, a very good model of childcare. Okay. You could look to the way that France finances its public Transport system. You could look to the way that Vienna owns land for housing and has a much more, um, a much better housing system than we do. You could look to the co-ops in housing in Denmark. You could look at the way that uh, Barcelona and Bologna and a city like Ghent uh, in in Flanders have constitutions that commit them to supporting the variety of organisations that work together to help people meet their shared needs. So there's an awful lot going on around the world that we, we can learn from their failures, like the failures of some um, market interventions in, in public services, w- in childcare, for example, in the UK and public transport, plenty of good examples to learn from the failures here, mm. but um, also some very inspiring examples from from other countries. And that's what we need to do now to find out more about what's going on elsewhere and how can we bring that knowledge and and really use it to build up universal basic services.
0: Mm. Laurie, any inspiration for us?
1: Yeah, I'm going to go back pick up from where I left off with libraries because oh, yeah. I, I think libraries have been neglected That's a good uh, example. in the in the kind of because we've seen obviously libraries have been eroded dramatically particularly the last 10 years with austerity they've been shut down they've been left to be run on volunteer basis etc um, but we've seen there's some really interesting examples of places which have done the opposite which is really really reimagine libraries what they are for the 21st century and think them I in mean, not just in terms of books but in terms of public space. And public space is something we've seen disappear really uh, across the country. Places where people can come together, they can meet. Um, There's lots of different things on offer. uh, Whether it's you know getting access to books for free or of nowadays the internet, etc. But the one that's inspired me is in Finland in Helsinki, they've got this library which is kind of must be the world's best library. It's got, you know, huge, it's got everything. It's got recording studios. People want to come in and play music. It's got an instrument library. Yeah. It's got uh, maker spaces that people come along and make things. It's got 3D printers. It's got event spaces, all this kind of stuff. And I think just really that idea of well, what does, you know, not just kind of let's just make sure we don't destroy the libraries we had, but what does these really uh, in, you know inspiring libraries look like in the 21st century? And what are the kind of basic services that we want to provide that anyone can access for free within them? Um, and that's something I'd quite like uh, to see some of the parties pick up, but maybe it's too late for the selection.
0: Mm, yeah, saxophones in every library. I, I like that a lot. The the actual the the quote of my the, the mantra of my childhood was having fun isn't hard when you've got a library card so there we go didn't have a ton of friends I had to copyright that <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know. it's actually from a TV show I stole but yeah it was very comforting okay so uh, we're almost at the end but I want to kind of revisit our, our previous podcast where we talked about the relationship between UBI and UBS we've touched upon it a little bit already but Anna so you've worked on this e- uh, extensively um, and we and some of the reports you've done etc have, have kind of uh, excavated the ways in which universal public services are more effective than universal or basic income or UBI. So could you just kind of briefly talk us through how you reached that conclusion?
2: Well, looking at the difference between collective provision and individual market transactions, you can see that, uh, I mean, there's plenty of evidence from around the world, actually, that it's better to do things collectively than to just leave things to individual choice. Because if you want to address inequality, for example, you're not going to be able to do that through just giving people money. You're not going to even save people from poverty by just giving people money. If you gave people enough money so that they were actually relieved from poverty, you would use up between 20 and 30% of GDP, and that would suck up all the money that you could possibly use for not just for universal basic services, but for things like a Green New Deal, if you wanted to do that. Mm. And so it's about trade-offs. You can't do one thing without the other. So I think that um, the idea of UBI is very well-intentioned in lots of ways. And it is very important to ensure that people have a decent basic minimum income, Mm -hmm. but not that you should give enough money to everybody so that is sufficient to live on because we simply couldn't afford it. And also it reduces the idea of meeting needs to market transactions. Mm-hmm. So it is about, I'll give you the money, you decide what to do with it. It doesn't do anything to build up solidarity. It isn't remotely sustainable. And it's not half as efficient as doing things
0: collectively. Mm. Laura, UBI, what, what are you saying?
1: One of the kind of... Drawbacks, I think, of uh, branding this, what we've talked about, as UBS. And this is a recent kind of branding or rebranding on an old, old idea, is that it's been presented, it's been kind of juxtaposed, obviously, intentionally against UBI.
0: We did uh, that on the podcast, actually. Guilty. I think, <laughs> I think
1: that's slightly unhelpful, because I think that they're, they don't really address some of the same problems. I know some people, advocates of both sides, say they're kind of, you know, one, they're kind of alternatives. But actually, if you're somebody who needs good school and good transport system, because you can't get anywhere, you know, basic income isn't going to solve that. Mm. Similarly, like we just said, if you're somebody that, you know, needs some money to, to, you know, clothe yourself, you know, services aren't going to solve that. And so I think there's a role for both income measures and um, uh, UBS type measures. Um, But for me, crucially, the, the, the main argument against UBI, not that I'm against it in some kind of future vision, is a kind of sequencing thing because if we introduced it today as the economy is currently constructed, if we just give everyone money, that money would, like money does today, it just flow upwards towards, you know, a, a, a rich, uh, mm-hmm. wealthy elite because the way we have our economy constructed today uh, is one which makes sure that money flows upwards and, uh And so I I think we need to focus on the kind of structural reforms of the way our economies operates today, including UBS, including bringing things out of the market, uh, including reducing the profit uh, mechanism across the economy. Uh, And then maybe, you know, once we've kind of won that battle, uh, maybe we can look at, uh, you know, UBI type measures and, and, and examine the drawbacks. But I think it's just if we introduce UBI today or even try to introduce something close to it, I think that the effects just wouldn't be, the, the, the effects would potentially actually be quite damaging.
2: Mm. Well, the UBI means all sorts of different things to different people, doesn't it? So if you, if you just want to give a little bit of money as a sort of token to say everybody could have this bit of money, um, as well as having universal basic services, that would be one thing. If you say we want to introduce U, UBI as a way of tackling poverty and inequality, that mm. would be another thing altogether. And that would mean giving people so much money that you wouldn't be able to afford anything else. So mm. that's the problem. I, I don't think that UBI, uh, if it means a sufficient amount of money to live on, is remotely compatible with UBS in fiscal or in ideological terms. But the idea of ensuring that everybody has got enough money to live on, a fair living income, if you like, is absolutely compatible and essential as a sort of policy companion, if you like, to UBS. But they're not the same thing. Mm-hmm.
1: I think in reality, where we're probably going to get to is there's there's, there's extreme positions on, on, you know, on, on both sides. But You know, in reality, for me anyway, if if we had a world where you have an expansion of UBS principles across lots of different areas uh, that we don't have today, at the same time as you have minimum income support or measures that Neff have talked about, which I think are good, it's not a fuel UBI or anything like that, but it's it's a bit more rational way to ensure that everyone has the money that they need. Um, It's not going to satisfy UBI purists, but I think these kind of, you know, Incremental steps on both sides moving, I think, is probably the optimal way to go rather than having our, our vision in some kind of pure, pure U, UBI in the future, which is going to solve all the problems because I don't think it is. Fantastic.
0: Fantastic. Okay. That was a nice, neat way to end because that's all we've got time for this week. Um, but thank you both so much for joining me to talk about UBS and UBI and all, all those other uh, wonderful acronyms. Anna Koo, thanks so much for joining me. If people want to find out more about your work or hear more from you, where can they go? What should they read?
2: Well, we've just finished a report for Public Services International, which is a global federation of trade unions. Fantastic. And we it's called um, Universal Quality Public Services, which is that very much equivalent to universal basic services and it sets out the case for introducing public services of a high quality that are universally available and it's supposed to inform people around in in a range of different countries not just in the UK. And
0: there's a book?
2: And there's also a book coming out in January called The Case for Universal Basic Services published by Polity Press.
0: Fantastic and Laurie McFarlane same question.
1: Uh, you can usually find me writing at Open Democracy, uh, where I'm economics editor, but I'm also doing various bits of research at UCL, um, so you can check me out there and on Twitter.
0: What is your Twitter handle?
1: Uh... It's quite confusing because it's at L then two underscores MacFarlane. Oh,
0: we've so had this before with have, you. Yeah. Why did I even ask? No, no. We'll 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 put a Make uh, sure you have
1: two underscores.
0: Yeah, we'll at we'll at you in the yeah. in the show notes so that everyone can find you. Okay. Uh, thank you, lovely listener, for being with us again. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Econ Pod on Twitter. The weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas Smith. See you next week i